All right, there we go. We're rolling. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely a great pleasure to be on. Thanks to, to you and, and everyone involved with your program for having libertarian candidates on in the past. I'm a big believer in the local and statewide campaigners that represent our party, so I'm really grateful to anyone who supports them. Oh, absolutely, man. And I, and I love talking to libertarian candidates like we were talking about before. And uh, like I said, I mean, there's not much better than getting a getting a presidential candidate on. So I'm just really glad you made the time to come on. Um, now, what, what does a presidential campaign look like in these early stages? Is it has it gotten real crazy yet? or Are you able to just kind of relax and take it easy for the moment? No, it's uh, crazy from the get-go. It's a competitive uh, situation inside the party for the next 18 months. Our party will choose a nominee in May of 2024. While I do uh, expect that it will be me, there are others who might argue with me about that, right? Um, right. There are, there are others who, who will be hopeful of earning the party's nomination. I believe some of those uh, folks to be really uh, well-qualified individuals. So I'm excited to participate in the process with them. But because it is competitive, folks are busy already. I'm relatively early compared to others, uh, but others will be coming in uh, over the next uh, few months. Yeah, and, and what, what does your day-to-day for the campaign look like this early uh, in the process. I'm curious to know. Uh, there's a, a couple of activities that take up most of my time, for example. One is just the blocking and tackling of making contact with folks like you, whether it's a podcast or a website, a blog, a, you know, someone in print. It's managing the social, me- social media aspects of it, as you might expect. You know, we have a a Twitter following, a Facebook following, uh, Instagram. Uh, we manage uh, an email communication list. We have three different websites that are up. So there's a lot of, just like I say, nuts and bolts that have to be tended to. Uh, the other uh, big activity that's that's going on in a heavy way last week, this week, and next week is team building. Mm. We have... Uh, approximately 20 advisors on our team at this point. And we have, uh, besides myself, I am full-time in this project, as you might imagine, we have someone else who's a paid employee of the campaign, and we are onboarding uh, two more people to to work on the campaign over the next uh, few days, or certainly over the next week or so. Um, and then we're going to be onboarding a couple more people after that. So just the, the team building aspect of it alone, uh, is, is, is very, very important. It has to be, has to be managed just right. So that takes up a lot of my focus this week and next week. Oh, I imagine it does. And I, I imagine it's pretty helpful to have, you said you 20 something advisors, uh, helping you. No, out. it's How- awful. Uh, Anyone who wants to do this in the future, my strong advice is to have no advisors whatsoever. I think, I think, you know, limit it to your spouse and maybe your mother. Uh, Zero is the right number. I hope they're all listening. They're just terrible people. 
they are all headstrong. They're all libertarian. They all have their own opinion. And they're worse, and you'll appreciate this, worse, they're diversified. We've got men, we've got women, we've got old, we've got young. Uh, we've got people in the Mises caucus. We have people who are not in the Mises caucus. We have people recent to the libertarian movement. We have people who have been in the libertarian movement for decades. We have a past chairman of the party. Uh, we've got people who are heavy hitter uh, donors and people who just stick their finger in the water. And and all of them have figured out they're smarter than I am and have no problem telling me so on a weekly basis. It's It's just awful. I recommend getting rid of all advisors, but it's too late for me. Oh, man, that's funny. Well, how, how did you come in contact with all these terrible people? Are they people you've worked with in the past, had recommended to you? What? The- oh, yeah, absolutely a hodgepodge. I ran for Congress uh, last year in a special election in Broward County, Florida, which is a weird experience uh, because it's one of the bluest, uh, most Democratic uh, uh, districts in the United States. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Nobody pays any attention to any races down there unless you're a Democrat. So it's very hard even to get some media attention uh, at all from the newspapers. So I met a lot of people that way. The Libertarian Party of Florida is quite strong and the Libertarian Party of Broward County in particular is uh, very strong. So I met a lot of people that way. A lot of people who appreciated the campaign and the hard work that uh, we did uh, came out of the woodwork to help, uh, to advise and so I onboarded a lot of people that way. And then uh, recently moved to Virginia. Uh, I moved from Florida to Virginia uh, earlier this year uh, and met some people up here. So we have people on our team from Virginia and uh, Delaware and New York and North Carolina, as well as the old uh, Florida crew. Uh, so it's, you know, people from from lots of different places. Really, the only thing that they have in common, they have two things in common. One is that they're libertarian. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other is they uh, they darn well know that they're smarter than I am. And uh, so they're full of uh, great advice. And the truth of the matter is that they make me a much, much better candidate. Um, but, you know, getting better is not always uh, as much fun as they say in the brochure, right? Right. Uh, you know, I have grown a lot in my libertarianism over the past, uh, say, three years. And uh, we have a platform now that I believe in a great deal. And I have enjoyed sharing it already the past few months and look forward to sharing it over the next 18 months with everybody in the party. God, 18 months, 18 months of of campaigning. That is uh... 18 months of campaigning inside the party. Yeah, yeah. And then we have six months of campaigning to the rest of America. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, so, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it, not me. I'm, I'm it's not for the right pains of heart. No, I am not happy about that at all. I mean, I'm happy that part of it is me, but the part about it not being you, we are going to change in the future. You, <laughs> you are going to run for office in the future. I know that you think I'm lying about that, but it is absolutely the truth. Someday you're going to run for office. Uh I'm going to help you, by the way, which is also weird. And you are going to hate every minute of it. And then you're going to love it. And you're going to realize what I tell everyone who who gives it any consideration whatsoever. There is no higher calling in the libertarian movement, in the liberty movement, Mm -hmm. than campaigning for office, sharing the message, getting the word out, 
with absolutely no expectation of personal financial gain or even self-aggrandizement. You do it for the cause. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And uh, I see this in your future. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not as uh, I'm not as convinced as, as you are, but uh, but time will tell. Who It'll knows? give us something to argue about in the future. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and I, I obviously I don't have to tell you this, but like the race for 2024 is already heated up. I'm not surprised that you're already in the thick of things and and things are crazy, um, which it, it's wild. We haven't even left 2022 yet. And 2024 is already just right here. Yeah. Um, and, and you're running for president in a time, too, where, you know, I think even more so than than 2016, voters are desperate for another option. You know, they're they're looking at Biden on the left and yeah. they're looking at Trump on the right, maybe DeSantis on the right. Although, yep. you know, I don't know about that. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how, how how did we get to this point where those are the two best options that the the two mainstream parties can come up with? I mean, how. How did we find ourselves in this situation, Mike? I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I have figured it out. I have solved all the world's problems, and I have written it down here. So it will only take me a few moments to explain it, of course. <laughs> um, no, and, and I know you don't expect that from me either, but I, I have spent some time thinking about this. I do believe that, that today is the result of a long chain of events. Maybe when we first stepped off the curb was by centralizing so much power and authority in the federal government over the past couple of centuries. But I do think another inflection point was when the American public began getting its news from different sources, which ultimately, I believe to be a very good thing. It has proven problematic over the past couple of decades in the sense that people on the left get their news from left-wing sources and people on the right get their news from right-wing sources. And people seem to have lost any sense of common purpose, common interests, and consequently, any respect whatsoever for people on the other side of the uh, of the aisle, and this has led each party to grow into these beasts that seem to, uh, on a daily basis, disregard what had been their political agenda mm-hmm. and make their number one objective keeping the other side out of power. And right. I believe that that each party demonstrates almost on a daily basis a greater interest in keeping the other side out of power, not only a greater interest in pursuing what had been their agenda in years and decades past, but to be honest, a a greater interest in keeping the other side out of power than adhering to the Constitution. And I believe in a democracy, this is where authoritarianism grows up in a democracy, it grows up out of the idea of politicians convincing people we need more power. We politicians, we government officials need more power and you should give it to us because what you have to fear is the other guy coming to power. What you have to fear is that other party taking over and you should fear that more than you should fear the loss of adherence to the constitution, more than you should Uh, fear the loss of your civil liberties. 
this is where authoritarianism comes from. And I think uh, this is probably a long, wind, long, more, more long-winded answer than, than you were looking for. But I do believe that a big reason we're in this weird situation we're in, where people are disappointed with the, with the parties that had represented them in the past, the leaders of these particular parties uh, are especially disappointing. These are situations that come up when too much authority is vested in any particular party. It's too much vested in, in the federal government itself, too much authoritarianism, uh, too much willingness to compromise the law, compromise ethics, compromise the Constitution in order to keep other people out of power. And it's what leads to these weird, weird situations. So I think it's a huge opportunity for the Libertarian Party. You know, you're right. People, uh, people have changed their outlook on certain things. I also think it's an obligation for the Libertarian Party to play a role in the future. Yeah, I know. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, we, we have a liberty minded candidate like yourself that's willing to jump into that arena and and fight the battle that I desperately do not want to fight. <laughs> um, but, but you will be joining in the future. I'm well, sorry if I'm the first one to tell you that, but uh, you will be campaigning in the in the future. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see. I'd love to talk a little bit about um, your background, because I, I feel like we could probably do a podcast just on your your career alone. I and mean, that would probably be the worst podcast ever produced in America. Yeah, but I would love it. <laughs> it would, you I would, you and I might enjoy it. We could do one pet podcast on me, one podcast on you, and then we'll do a podcast for the rest of the world that they, <laughs> they would actually listen to. How's that? Hey, I'm, hey, I'm game. Don't uh, don't tempt me with a good time. Uh, but, you know, police officer for a little over a decade, Ph.D. in economics. You know, you were at the Office of Management and Budget, along with a million other places, all your finance experience. I mean, I could go on and on. And I just met you. I mean, could you could you walk me through your professional background just a bit? Tell me a little bit about the, that. The, the two minute version. Yeah, it's not a coincidence that I have gray hair, even from the standpoint of uh, the passage of time or the, the passage of, you know, one crisis after another. Uh, I was in the banking industry for a little while, um, came out of engineering school and then uh, business school, worked in the banking industry for a little while. Went back to graduate school in Washington, D.C. because I wanted to be interested, wanted to pursue a career. I was interested in public policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, earned a master's degree and a Ph.D. in economics at the George Washington University, which is uh, what we would call a rational expectation school, a descendant of the Chicago School of Thought, uh, itself a descendant of the Austrian School of Thought, a free market uh, outlook type of uh, university, uh, really a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience. Yeah, I worked for the White House for a couple years, other government agencies. Uh, I worked for the 1992 Bush re-election campaign as a Republican. Uh, that's the campaign that Bill Clinton won. Uh, so that was a, a tough experience. I was around uh, the, the White House and that campaign when President Bush, I'm talking about Herbert Walker Bush, right? right? right. The, 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 the elder President Bush. I was around when 
he had gone back on his promise. Uh, you might remember his famous promise that when something like this, you know, people will ask me to, to, to tolerate new taxes. And I'll say, read my lips, no new taxes. Right. And then eventually he went back on that pledge. And for, I got to tell you, for a young conservative economist, that was a tough day, right? Those were, those were tough years. Oh, yeah. uh, that'll teach you to grow out of being a Republican real fast. <laughs> what, so, the, uh, what, what did you do on that campaign exactly uh, for HW? Uh, I was what, a communications staffer. I, was, uh, I had been a low-level economist working for the Office of Management and Budget uh, for the White House uh, for a couple of years. And then I became a low-level communications analyst uh, on the campaign, uh, which is a, you know, a, a conglomerate of a, a weird set of assignments. For a couple of months, I remember uh, my job was to read every word out of Bill Clinton's mouth and look for subtle changes and report them to my bosses. That was a funny assignment. Um, I helped prepare material questions and answers for the president. Uh, when he was getting ready for debates, I would research, you know, what it is that people are likely to ask in a debate, what, what kinds of questions they like to ask, and, you know, what answers have been traditionally uh, given. Nuts and bolts, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I managed a, a team of analysts whose jobs uh, were to keep track of issues uh, surrounding the campaign. Uh, this is before the internet days, right? Right. So, uh, as you might imagine, it was fairly labor intensive to keep track of things. You know, we, we, we had literal files, not uh, electronic files. Yeah, online. couldn't just do a Google search, huh? Yeah, we couldn't just do a <laughs> Google search. Uh, we, we kept files of newspaper clippings and, and, facts and charts and and you know someone would call down to our our basement-esque office and say what can you tell me about xyz issue and we would have to put together a pile of papers and and run it up to whoever was asking so it was that sort of thing um a lot of uh a, a lot of work that thankfully doesn't have to be done the same way uh these days and oh, after God. that, I went back into the banking industry. Uh, I was an advocate for free markets on behalf of the banking industry for quite some time. Uh, a partner of mine and I, after that, uh, had our own business uh, educating bankers um, in a lot of operational aspects, not really political aspects. But mm -hmm. as, as uh, you know, running your own business is, is its own education. And did that for a bunch of years as well. Uh, taught economics at the graduate school uh, and uh, undergraduate level at a couple of universities in Florida. Uh, worked as a substitute teacher in the Broward County Public School High Schools uh, part-time at the same time for a couple of years uh, just to see what that was like. And we can talk about that as well. That was an eye-opening experience. Yeah, what was that like? Oof. Um, 
everything bad you've ever heard about Florida public schools is true. <laughs> if <laughs> yeah, um, it's not hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny. It's full of well-meaning, hardworking, intelligent and talented people. Right. And that's one of the real shame of, of, of the whole situation is that teachers are, you know, God bless them. They they mean well. Uh, for the most part, they work hard. They want to do a good job. It's just a very difficult environment, both from the standpoint of dealing with the kids, as well as from the standpoint of how schools are structured. Uh, oh, a yeah. big problem with the industry is that it there is no competition. There's almost no competition. The vast majority of students have to go to the school that they have to go to. If they have any flexibility at all, it's to go to another public school. Most right. kids don't have the option of going to a private school. And if they do have the option of going to a private school, their family has to pay the whole thing. And because of that price pressure, that cost pressure on the family, private schools are always trying to squeeze their budgets down as low as possible. And so most private schools have to deal with budgets that are much, much smaller than public school budgets. And so the competition, to the extent to which it exists at all, is not anything close to what you would call a, a level playing field. Right. And if, if there was any doubt in my mind uh, about the need for school choice reform before getting involved with the Broward, Broward uh, County Public Schools, that doubt was absolutely erased uh, during those experiences. Oh yeah. The, the, uh, the other, the other way I was involved with schools and, and youngsters came a couple years later when I became a police officer, I'd always wanted to be a cop. Indeed, when I was in grad school, 20 years earlier, uh, in Washington, DC, I had, uh, taken the entrance exam for the Metropolitan uh, Washington, D.C. Police Department and just at the last minute decided uh, I, I just couldn't afford it. You know, I wanted to raise a family and pursue a career and they just weren't paying enough. Right. I'm not sure that's motivation of which I should be proud. I should probably be a little bit embarrassed by that, but whatever. That is the truth of the matter. And so I just put it off. But that was something that, you know, even way back then you had in your mind that yeah. You know, you wanted to do that because I, you know, I feel like going from, you know, like economist to you know, work, you know, working for uh, the the former president, being an economist, being a teacher, I feel like jumping over to law enforcement. That that struck me as interesting when I was reading over your your website and your bio. I feel like it's a it's a pretty interesting career path there. It uh, it was a big change. Uh, change is hard. In general, change is hard. Yes. Uh, which is one of the reasons why change is good and change is so important. Uh, it's because it is hard and it forces you to do things differently and forces you to grow. Having said that, this particular change uh, was large. And uh, I turned 49 in the police academy. Oh, wow. We, we figured out that more than 50% of my class had at least one parent younger than I was. <laughs> and <laughs> a weird stat, huh? Yeah. Um, in, in some respects, being a 49-year-old uh, recruit 
is is hard uh you know thank god i was in good physical condition uh, but it is is a cultural uh change right oh yeah on the other hand being a 50 to 60 year old i did it for 11 and a half years i did it from the ages of 49 to 60 being an older guy uh really helps being the kind of cop you want to be right the police culture will take over your brain there are aspects about that that are good and aspects about that that are bad and you have to really be well grounded on your own two feet to be the kind of cop you want to be rather than just going with the flow right right like I say, sometimes going with the flow is not bad, but there are other instances in which uh, I, I I think I wish more cops were ready to to stand on their own two feet and resist some of the temptations that are that are out there. the The training that you go through as a police officer is such that it it teaches you to be to be careful, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is not a bad thing. But there are aspects of that that I think go too far in some weird directions. Uh, the, the culture teaches you that there is nothing more important than you going home at night, metaphorically speaking. There's nothing right. more important than protecting your own safety. And I would argue, not just as a, certainly as a libertarian, but I would argue as just a, a citizen, you know, someone who's got you know, 30 year old children, mm-hmm. um, that, that can't be the most important thing. Right. Right. Uh, the, the most important thing has got to be the, the, the safety of the, the people in your community. The, the good news about the police culture is that, uh, you do fall in love with your community. You do, whether you anticipated that, expected that, or wanted that, in some sense, you do. You you take real pride in your ability to add value in your community to try to keep people safe. You do get pissed when people commit crimes in your <laughs> in your zone, especially if it's you know on someone that you know or just you know someone who is an innocent victim. That kind of thing really does uh, affect you, and that's probably a good thing. Obviously, you don't want it to affect you too much because it can be a roller coaster, right? Uh, so there are aspects of the police culture that are really important. I'm a big believer in public service, which is how I ended up in that situation in the first place. It's of course how I ended up working in public policy for the previous 20 years as well. Uh, so I'm not trying to run down police culture, right? but you, you have to be, you have to be on your own two feet so that you don't, uh, get sucked up into the the things that we do as cops that, that can be, you know, that can be lazy. You know, you fall back on the idea that I'm important, uh, that I know the difference between right and wrong, that I know when it's okay to violate someone's civil rights and when it's not. Um, you know, I understand the constitution more than someone else does. And that gives me the right to bend it in certain places. These are the things that, uh, naturally, naturally crop up. Uh, I do not believe what some people assert, which is, you know, cops are bad people and we tend to recruit the wrong kind of people and, you know, stuff like that. I find that uh, to be, frankly, bullshit. 
Right. Um, the vast majority of cops, I say vast majority, I mean damn near every single one of the million beat cops in America does a great job, does the best job that he or she can. Oh, yeah. But the, the training is such. I, I believe that as cops, our effectiveness is actually compromised in many ways by the, the training and the culture in which we're indoctrinated. And of course, the the big thing that I spent a lot of time talking about with regard to police reform is not is not so much the culture, which is uber important, but the structure of how we manage police. Mm. I believe that we need to sunset this uh, federal doctrine of of qualified immunity and replace it with an environment in which police are are held more accountable and require police officers to carry third-party liability insurance like a doctor does for example right you know when it when a doctor makes a mistake we don't say well you know he didn't mean to cut off the wrong finger uh, suck it up, buttercup. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, thank God we don't do that with, <laughs> thank God we don't do that. And, and <laughs> right. You know, there has to be not only some accountability, but look, the, the idea that you wouldn't have an opportunity to pursue redress in this country, I find un-American. Right. Um, you know, Almost every single case in which a cop does something wrong, it's a mistake. We're not talking about, you know, criminal behavior. Obviously, if there's something criminal, there's no protection now and there shouldn't be. Uh, We need to prosecute crimes committed by police officers uh, just as earnestly as crimes committed by anybody, or arguably more earnestly, right? Because there's a a violation of, of faith there. Right. But in too many cases, the deference given to police officers, not, not merely in cases where qualified immunity applies, but in, in cases more generally beyond qualified immunity, there's uh, an air of deference accorded police officers that goes overboard. And I appreciate the fact that, that police officers are probably always going to receive some deference in, in a court environment. I, you know, I, I get that. Some of that's going to be a little bit natural, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's overboard. It's way too much. So I, I think that we need an environment in which police officers are carrying uh, liability insurance. Um, that way, when mistake, honest mistakes, screw ups are made, there can be compensation there. And police officers that are you know, in the habit of being screw ups are going to get priced out of the market by their insurance premium. Right. And this is so important because right now unions protect police officers too much from the accountability that I believe the industry needs. And while a a union might be in the business of protecting a police officer and, you know, as a libertarian, I'm a big believer that everyone has First Amendment right to free association. I'm not trying to run down unions. Mm-hmm. The problem is they do too good a job and the politicians do a crappy job of negotiating with them. <laughs> so if, if you had some third party referee, if you had private sector liability insurance, if there's a, a liability insurance carrier out there who is standing behind the police officers, they're not going to put up with the crap from the unions that says, you know, you can't get certain information. 
Right. Now the answer is going to be, look, if you people want insurance, we're going to need all the information there is in the world. Everything from training records uh, to academy records, past performance, uh, past case issues, uh, all kinds of things. And by the way, we're going to want to interview every one of these cops. So, you know, there's going to be an ability to hold people accountable and an ability to, to understand in a greater fullness each individual case if there's someone involved uh, that, that can pierce the veil that is put in front of the public by the police unions. So I'm a big believer in moving in that direction. The first step is to get rid of qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. Now, when did, um, when, when did you first think about running for public office? Because you, you mentioned it earlier. You, you ran in that, uh, the special election for Congress there yeah. uh, in Florida. Is that something that was always kind of like being a police officer that was always no. kind of in the back of your head? Or is, no. was that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, a year and a half ago, our congressman in the area, Alcee Hastings, a longtime beloved Democrat, He himself had problems with uh, past court issues that we don't need to go into. Mm -hmm. Uh, He passed away in office and all of a sudden there was this special election. And in the Libertarian Party of uh, Broward County, we thought this would be an opportunity to get our our word out, our message distributed if we participated in this election. And and so I, I jumped in. We had a team of volunteers passed out a lot of brochures, shook a lot of hands in the Walmart parking lots, right? <laughs> uh, a lot of door-to-door activity, just oh, yeah. retail blocking and tackling, getting to know the Palm Beach Post and the, the Sun Sentinel and, and Dade County. Um, uh, a, a great experience, not for the faint of heart. You know, if you if you have thin skin, this is not an appropriate pastime. I can tell you that much. <laughs> People in Broward and Palm Beach counties had never even heard of libertarianism, had never heard of the Libertarian Party, and didn't have much interest. So, it was a lot of hard work to get our message out. A rewarding experience, but not for not for those of uh, of thin skin. Oh, I can imagine it's not. Yeah. What uh, so that wrapped up in January of this year. That was actually a long campaign from April to January because Governor DeSantis put off the election so long. And uh, it gave us a chance to realize that the the brand of the Libertarian Party has almost no value in it whatsoever. You could probably get as many votes in many local races running as an independent as you would as a libertarian. Right. Yeah, no, I, believe, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I believe that in part, that's a failure of our past national campaigns. You know, one of the things that a presidential campaign has to do is build the, the brand value of the party so that when statewide and local candidates run thereafter, they're running in an environment in which someone has come before you to introduce the ideas of liberty to your constituents. When I was yeah. running for Congress in, in South Florida, I was 
teaching people how to spell libertarian, right? I mean, it was, you really had to start from ground zero. Oh, man. And, and so uh, part of the reason I jumped into to this campaign is because I want to lead the party's nomination process in a direction that says what really matters is getting our message out in a very credible way and at the same time a very bold way that differentiates us hard from the other parties in a way that people will remember. We can't be out there defining ourselves in terms of the other parties. We have to draw real clear distinctions so that people remember us so that they know what libertarianism means. They know what the Libertarian Party stands for at the very least. And in this way, build the ID uh, and the and the value of the party brand so that those who come after us will be able to to be more productive. Yeah. And do, do you think the, the Libertarian Party now is doing a better job of of doing that than they were in the past. I, I haven't been involved with like the Libertarian Party for very long. So I'm unfamiliar with how the party was being led like prior yeah. to 2020 or so. And I, of course they just had the big leadership election not yeah. that long ago. You think, you think the national party is doing a better job now or. I think that uh, I believe that they're the, the heart of the leadership of the Libertarian Party is in the right place. I believe that the leadership of the Libertarian Party understands the conversation you and I are having. They understand the need to brand ourselves in a very differentiated way. They understand how important that is. They understand the importance of local elections and statewide elections. And I'm hoping that they understand the, the role of the national campaign in that process. Right. Uh, over the next 18 months, I'm going to be making that case. So anyone who who hasn't heard that and is not on board with that idea, they will be over the next 18 months, <laughs> I can guarantee. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're definitely yeah. going to let them know. And, and, and that's what I believe is really important about a national campaign is is branding the party, branding our ideas, keep giving giving people an opportunity to understand what our ideas are and vote for something rather than just voting against the other parties. I mean, it, it's okay if you vote libertarian just because you want to send a protest signal. That's okay, right? <laughs> but uh, what we really want is for people to know for whom they're voting, why, why it's important, because that's where brand value, uh, brand value comes from. So to do that, you've got to run a very professional campaign. You have to focus on policy. You can't just focus on focus on why the Republican Party stinks and why the Democratic Party stinks. As right. easy as that might be, you have to focus <laughs> on more than that. And you have to have a credible candidate. Someone doesn't necessarily have to be me, but I do believe it has to be someone who has dedicated a career to public service, who's been involved right. in public service, um, who believes in it. I don't think it's the right approach to say, all government sucks. All government employees suck. Uh, public policy in the United States sucks. And I want to be president. That uh, is a tough sell for people. Right. 
notwithstanding how much of that is true. You know, there is <laughs> very there true. Is some, <laughs> there is some truth to all of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think the better sell is is that we can do better. That there are people involved who want to do the right thing who don't know what the right thing is. That the philosophies pursued by the parties have have come so far from the Constitution as to be counterproductive and not even in the American public's interest. Right. By replacing some of those ideologies, we can make the world a better place and make the lives of American constituents better. Yeah. And, you know, much, uh, (laughs) much like your extensive, you know, professional experience, I feel like, you know, how much the two mainstream parties we have, suck i feel like we could also do an entire podcast just trashing them if we wanted to (laughs) again not something i'm opposed to but just you know i do i do want to talk about some of these uh some of these ideas you're talking about some of these policies that you're putting forward in your uh campaign and i and i think anyone who follows you on twitter like i do and would highly recommend um or or goes to your website uh is going to notice that you talk a lot about um the gold new deal yeah. And I want to get that get to that, of course, but uh, I think we maybe need to establish a little context. Um, yep. there, there's an essay on your website that I'd recommend everyone read um, titled An Open Relationship is a Better Option Than a National Divorce. And um, the idea of a national divorce, you know, like you mentioned in that article, has been the subject of debate in libertarian circles pretty prominently for the past few months or so. Sure. Um, You know, some people are for it. Some people are against it. But I feel like uh, people, voters who are outside of that that libertarian circle might not even, you know, understand what's what's being talked about. So, you know, could you maybe explain what what a national divorce is? What, What what exactly would that entail? Yeah, well, uh, different people might mean different things by it, but the 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 kernel on which I think a lot of people uh, agree is that many people are interested in one form of secession or another. States having uh, the right and the interest in divorcing themselves from other states, divorcing themselves from the federal government, mm-hmm. and pursuing their own political futures. Mm-hmm. And I think this this comes from a frustration with our federal government. It comes from having too much power. It comes from a frustration of not appreciating how other Americans feel about certain things, right? Democrats mm-hmm. don't want to be in the same country as Republicans and, and vice versa. Right. However, having said that, uh, I don't believe that secession solves these problems. For example, if, uh, if I don't remember the example I, I cited in that uh, essay, but I grew up in, in Illinois, so it's an example that comes to my mind readily. Anyone who spent a lot of time in Illinois knows that that's already two different states. You know, Chicago and downstate Illinois are as different as New York City and Albany, New York. Oh, yeah. Two completely different places. They're just two completely different places. So just to pick the Illinois example, if Illinois were to secede from the rest of the union, 
is not going to solve the problem of Republicans and Democrats being mad at each other. No. So I don't think that secession solves all these problems. The Libertarian Party of Florida last year voted, or I should say earlier this year, voted for secession. And I do not mean that they voted with the idea in mind of making the statement, Florida has the right to secede. They were voting because they thought it was a good idea. They, right. were, they were voting that they wish Florida would secede. Yeah. Te- uh, Texas Republicans uh, did something similar. They, they put it in their platform that they, yeah. they're, yep. they, they're going to hold a referendum on whether Texas should yep. leave the union, I believe, next year. So ugh. it's a it's a big deal. Um, I believe that not only does it not solve uh, some of our problems, I believe that it's also a political non-starter in the sense that the vast majority of Americans uh, don't want to live in a, a different country than the United States. Right. Which is, at the end of the day, what we're talking about. Your state wouldn't be part of the United States anymore. Most Americans don't want that. And when I say most, I mean almost all of them. Yeah, the, the vast majority. Exactly. When people say secession is not a bad idea, they mean you leaving is not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> they don't mean we leaving, right? Right. Um, so the other part that should be said is that I am not convinced that there is just zero value left in the federal government. Right. On balance, it may be a big red negative, but that doesn't mean that there's no value there to be had. I think the vast majority of Americans, for example, would say uh, national defense is something that is more efficient with with the states hanging together. Mm. Now, having said that, there may be very little beyond national defense that gives anyone a reason to continue participating with the federal government. Right. And so my idea is... And, and by the way, the fundamental idea behind the Gold New Deal is that we need a very different relationship between us and our government, which is why we're calling it the, the Gold New Deal. The New Deal in the 1930s uh, being a real fundamental change in the relationship between individuals and the federal government as well as between states and the federal government. Right. So we're kind of poking it in the eye of uh, the New Dealers from 1930s to say the Gold New Deal. We're also making fun of the Green New Deal, which is an (laughs) equally aspirational phenomenon. It's just more moronic than even the original New Deal. Oh, yeah. So we're trying to make fun of both of those a little bit. But I like it. I'm a fan. I think you're doing a good job with it. Bless your heart. So (laughs) we're, we're suggesting we need a very different... Uh, relationship with the government. And so my idea is, and Gold New Deal is a 10, uh, 10 point uh, platform. So don't let me make it sound like everything is, is completely uh, simplistic, but Mm -hmm. the fundamental, uh, the big flagship idea is to give states the right to opt out of federal supremacy so that the world will look a lot more like the founders had intended when when they wrote the 10th Amendment. Alternatively, we could just pass the 10th Amendment over again and say, now we really mean it. 
<laughs> um, but uh, I don't think people would, would go for that. So right. what I'm suggesting is give states an option. It would require a constitutional amendment that would give states an option to say, uh, we're going to opt out of federal supremacy going forward. So from now on, when there's federal law, even court cases, executive orders that conflict with state law, Mm -hmm. we can resolve that unilaterally in our own courts. We can pass state law uh, that says that, you know, we're taking a pass on that. Right. And to the extent to which there's conflicts already, uh, we can unilaterally nullify uh, federal law, federal court orders, federal uh, executive orders. Mm-hmm. So it gives states the right to chart their own political futures, except for those very specific powers that the federal constitution grants to the federal government, namely and mainly national defense. Right. And so you would remain in the union, anyone taking us up on this uh, option that we are suggesting be offered, you would remain in the union, but uh, your relationship would be very, very uh, different. You'd be able to resolve the vast majority of your political conflicts in your own state houses where people are much more equipped to resolve these conflicts than they are at the federal level where so much rides on the idea of keeping the other side out of, uh, out of power. Some, some of those problems exist in state houses as well, but state houses right. work much more effectively than the U S Congress does. So that's the flagship idea. And then underneath that, the rest of the gold new deal spells out, uh, some of the ways in which that relationship would be different. So for example, to the extent to which the federal government needed to raise money, you would have to go through the state to do it. You wouldn't have a direct relationship with individuals. So we'd get the IRS out of the lives of individuals and the state house would fund the federal government. Mm. The reason I think this is so important, I, I don't know if you or any of your listeners have ever been audited by the IRS. It's a very pleasant experience, as you might imagine. I've been audited. Oh, I bet. And uh, yeah, you know, they're very nice about it. They send you a nice letter. It's very clear about what it is that they're concerned about. And, um, and you have very uh, cordial and uh, clearly explanatory phone conversations after that. And it gets resolved uh, in a matter of days. And of course, everything I just said is absolute bullshit. It takes a a tremendous amount of time. They try to intimidate you. They are horrible communicators. And uh, part of what you need to do is wait them out because they are typically wrong and not very smart. (laughs) It's a horrible process. The big problem is that you don't have any power in that relationship. Right. The IRS is a ridiculously powerful law enforcement agency with broad powers. They have their own court system in which they are granted enormous deference. And you do not want to be in that situation. On the other hand, states have a very different relationship with the federal government. 
and would be in a much better place to negotiate on, on behalf of their constituents. And that's the relationship that you want. Uh, the federal government wants a direct rela- relationship with individuals because they can intimidate you into, into paying. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible, horrible uh, situation in my view. So uh, the perfect situation, ultimately, what we, what we want to get to is for a state to have the option of saying, we will fund you, you will send us a bill, talking to the federal government, you will send us a bill once a year for our share of national defense, and that's it. And, you know, the rest of your interests, none of our business, you can go pound sand. We're not funding the rest of it. That's the ultimate goal. That's the relationship that we want to get to and is much more like what the founding fathers intended than this monstrosity that has been developed over the past couple of hundred years. Oh, yeah. And, you know, accomplishing something like that is going to be a hell of a task. I mean, we were talking about just, you know, how how crazy your your presidential campaign is going to be, but like having to pass a constitutional amendment to get, you know, the gold new deal. Yeah. In effect, I mean, that's a whole you know, that, that's a whole separate battle you're going to have to fight there. It's a whole separate battle. It's a big deal. We'll see how the next couple of years go and then we'll see how the next couple of years go after that, right? I right. do believe that in the next uh two, six, 10 years, 14, I would, I would say in the next 10, 14, certainly the next 18 years, we will elect a president who is either a capital L libertarian, or at the very least a lowercase L libertarian. I believe that that will happen. I do not, uh, that does not mean I'm very optimistic about the way this is going to play out. I believe that the reason we have such an opportunity and indeed such an obligation to participate in this process is because things are going so badly and likely to get much worse before they get better. And as things get worse, it'll, it'll develop certain opportunities for us that don't yet exist. And and that's why I believe that that will happen, but I'm not trying to paint a rosy and very optimistic (laughs) picture. I'm saying that things are going to get so bad that eventually we will have a, a libertarian resurgence that is is starting now. Yeah, one one uh <laughs> one thing that I've learned from talking to as many libertarian candidates as I have is that uh, they are not optimists. You know, they <laughs> they they often do paint a pretty uh pretty depressing picture of of what's to come and rightfully so, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, it's rough. I mean, we can be optimistic about eventually playing an important role. And of course, you have to be a bit of an optimist to be running, to be engaged, to believe that you can make a difference, even to believe that you can get your message out, to believe that people are listening, to know that your ideas are what can actually make America a better place. All of that requires some optimism. But you have to appreciate the fact that uh, a lot of our opportunity grows out of the fact that at the certainly at the federal level, and I would argue at uh, lower levels as well, the way government works in this country is not the way it was intended and, and no longer largely in the public interest. Right. Have you, um, I, you know, I know it's early in the campaign and everything like that, but have you had the opportunity to talk to like voters about the gold new deal? Or I'm, re- I'm real curious to see what the response has been like from people that you've talked to, you know, yeah. about what you're proposing. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, we have, um, you know, 
gone out of our way to to reach some people who are outside of the Libertarian Party. Um, and I can tell you that there is a lot of explanatory work to be done in this arena. Mm-hmm. I believe that uh, it's very likely the only way we can succeed in this is through political campaigning. I do not believe that this can be accomplished outside of running for offices. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. You, you have to get people's attention. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, it's hard. I mean, there are ways to make it easier than, than, than otherwise. There are techniques that are worth pursuing, uh, both in terms of marketing and advertising and campaigning. Uh, but I am convinced that the only way to succeed in, in getting our ideas any traction is through political campaigns. That has to start with, uh, as I mentioned before, a real fully differentiated uh, presidential campaign. And it's real important. Speaking of receptivity, one of the things that we've also found, and we've conducted a little bit of our own polling on this already, Uh, not inside the Libertarian Party, but outside the Libertarian Party. Mm -hmm. We believe that people, uh, Americans, voters, when they look at the presidential campaigns, they still believe that while it's in part a battle of ideologies, they still believe that the individuals involved matter. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put forth a professional campaign, uh, a well-specified ideology that differentiates you, but you also have to have a candidate that people can look at and say they could at least imagine you being a credible threat to go all the way. You know, people have an expectation of what that looks like a little bit. Uh, Someone who's committed to public service, uh, someone who's been around the block a little bit, these things uh, matter. And if you don't check some of those boxes, your philosophy can be the greatest thing since sliced bread. People aren't giving you the time of day. Right. So we need to be able to make that case uh, as well. All of this, Matt, each each of these is a, a piece of the puzzle that has to be in place. Oh, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think you're really right that the only way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish is is campaigning, you know, I mean, there might be other ways to maybe plant a seed or, you know, something, maybe get people's attention for a little bit. But I think at the end of the day, running a campaign like you're doing, you know, knocking doors, making phone calls, shaking hands, kissing babies, that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that really is the only way to, to educate people on this and, and win them over. I think you're absolutely right. It's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing but hard work and, uh, Hopefully the intersection of opportunity and obligation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just we're, we're approaching an hour here and I, I don't want to keep you too long over that, but I, I did want to give you an opportunity here just towards the end to maybe talk about some of the other uh, issues that you're prioritizing in your campaign. I mean, you know, we've covered the gold new deal. You know, we talked about uh, police reform and ending qualified immunity earlier. There, there are any other issues that you're considering, you know, real real big key components of your 
your campaign? I think, uh, yeah, thanks for asking. I think uh, underneath the Gold New Deal, we also have uh, a couple of planks on the management of fiscal policy and monetary policy in the United States, because I think people are focused on those as they always are, but even this time to a greater uh, extent and a greater degree than ever. We're facing the possibility of a recession next year. I would argue a probability. Uh, right. we'll, we'll see. And I think a growing proportion of the American electorate is recognizing that a lot of our economic problems come from bad public policy. Mm. The situation we're in now is not so different than the late 70s and early 80s. But in those days, people had a great deal more blind faith in the institutions of our of our republic, of our government. Right. <laughs> and we can argue round and square whether that was a good idea, right? I would argue that uh, some of our blind faith was was misplaced. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't think the American electorate has changed so much as, as we have had our eyes opened uh, to some of the reasons why some of these institutions are probably not as worthy of our faith as, as we had once believed and, and hoped. Having having said that, I think people are more ready than ever to hear the role that the Federal Reserve plays in trying to do a good job when it uh, comes to controlling monetary policy, but cannot live up to the expectations that are put on the shoulders of the people that run the Fed. It just cannot be, be accomplished as it's structured. I believe that we need to replace Fed monetary policy with a rules-based monetary policy. Mm. I believe that we need to replace the Fed's regulatory authority with a more optional system and that we need to take away the Fed's balance sheet and uh, put it on the Treasury Department where it can be controlled through legislation. So it's not so easy for the Fed to bail out banks or bail out anybody else in the middle of the night willy-nilly. Right. Uh, in other words, those being the three parts of the Federal Reserve System, I would I would end the Fed uh, lock, stock, and barrel. But that's a that's a bit of a tough sell and has to be handled in parts. But I do believe that the American electorate is much more open to hearing this discussion than ever before. I believe the th same thing can be said for fiscal policy. I think people are in greater recognition than ever before that bad fiscal policy hurts. I think people have been able to see the Biden administration sending out checks in an effort to get us through uh, COVID, a policy that turned out to be a, a, a waste of money, inflationary, uh, that did not help things like supply chains, um, that added to our uh, our debt burden, as well as inflation, that was not fair, uh, and that spending money per se is just, you know, as much as it's always been a bad idea, I think more people recognize that to be the case than ever before. I think that the the COVID lockdowns, for example, the vaccine mandates, yes, people now recognize more than more than six months ago, more than twelve months ago, more than eighteen months ago that these were things that. We're in violation of your civil rights. Uh, we're not worth it. We're not a good idea. We're driven by public officials who thought they were a hell of a lot smarter than they actually are, <laughs> uh, who were not in every case as forthcoming 
as they should have been, right? Right. Who took extraordinary measures to to drill a particular message down on the American people uh, at the expense of other voices that would have been beneficial. That overall, it was managed with a complete disdain for our civil rights and the way that government should work. I think people now see that and are starting to realize that this and the other forms that authoritarianism takes are all of a of a bundle. And that's what provides a real opportunity for libertarianism and libertarians. So I'm excited to get out there and and get the message out. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're right. And just speaking of COVID, you know, that blind faith that Americans used to have in their institutions and everything like that. I think post COVID that shit's out the window, (laughs) you know, like whatever remaining blind faith people had in, in those institutions that is for, for a a lot of people, most people that is gone. I think that that is completely gone. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's a shame that there is so little trust uh, I don't think that's the American people's fault. I think that is the fault of the people who abused our faith and trust. Yes. And I think it's a real shame. I'm, I'm not one of those people, you know, I'm not a complete anarchist in the sense that I think it's a, you know, I'm not trying to say it's a good thing that nobody trusts anybody anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want a police force we can trust. Right. I don't think we're there in every case, uh, as much as I probably have a greater appreciation for police officers than most people, just because of my experience, but I share my skepticism that things are run the way I wish they were. Uh, I wish that we had a monetary policy we could trust a fiscal policy we could trust. I wish all these things were true and that existed, but they don't, and they aren't. And, uh, we need to find a way to get back to, a world in which we can trust each other a little bit more. But that necessarily means having systems in place like the founding fathers wanted, where there are checks and balances. Uh, You know, like Ronald Reagan used to say, trust but verify, right? Right. Where there's less power in the hands of politicians, so there's less incentive to abuse that trust. There's greater transparency, greater accountability. That's the, the, the directions uh, in which we need to go. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And um, Yeah, just just want to st- kind of start wrapping up here, man. I'm curious, what, uh, I mean, what's next for you? What kind of big things do you have uh, planned for your campaign in these next few months, next year? I mean, what, yep. what are some big things that you're looking forward We're to? We're going to the conventions. Uh, yes. We're lined up in a dozen conventions in the spring already, and a dozen more we're lining up. So we're going to have a bit of a road show. Uh, I look forward to speaking to those uh, state libertarian parties. Uh, in in some cases, it's a Friday here, a Saturday there, and a Sunday someplace else. <laughs> so it requires a little bit of uh, travel budget and vitamin B. But... Uh, you know, getting out and meeting libertarians and talking to delegates about the ideas that we have, it's, it's what it's all about. And it, it provides its own energy. You know, the energy that you need is met with the energy provided by 
working with uh, such such great folks who want the same things as you do and want to hear your ideas. So that's what the spring is going to be all about. As I said, we're onboarding some people to work on the campaign. So that's exciting. Uh, we'll be rolling out a fundraising uh, program in the spring. We haven't asked anyone for a nickel yet, uh, but <laughs> but we know that we need to, to do some of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll be uh, getting more involved with uh, public relations and media and the, the blocking and tackling of the campaign, but it will all revolve around this idea that we need a, a new relationship with our government. We need a gold new deal. We need to run a professional and credible campaign, and we need to do all of that in a way that differentiates us from the political duopoly in place today. Oh man, I'm excited. I'm excited for you, man. I can't wait to see just what, what the campaign has in store and you know, what, um, I don't, just what all of that is going to look like. I, I absolutely cannot wait. And if other, other people are like me and they, they want to keep up with you and everything like that, where can they find you? Throw out some social media handles, website, everything like that. Well, uh, yeah, go to go to Twitter and you can follow. Uh, uh, it's at uh, Termot Mike. You'd have to spell Termot right, which might be a challenge. T-E-R-M-A-A-T. Uh, but mm-hmm. You could probably just search Mike Termot and get in the right place. Uh, We do have three websites up, um, two of which I'll plug now. The third one might not be quite ready for prime time. Uh, You can go to MikeTermott.com and GoldNewDeal.org. GoldNewDeal.org. It's not GoldNewDeal.com. You can go to GoldNewDeal.com if you want, but they'll try to sell you something. (laughs) Which is not, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea to buy gold, right? Uh, Right. That's probably not a bad idea, but... uh, but that's not what we're about. We're at goldnewdeal.org, but you can read about the campaign, see the videos, uh, see the positions at uh, miketremont.com. Yeah. Would, would highly recommend people follow you on Twitter and, and everywhere else, man. And by the way, uh, that's my real phone number in all of these places. Oh, really? Yes. That's, that's the real deal. That's the phone I carry in my pocket couple of people have called. I don't know what they were expecting, but when I say hello, they're like, who's this? <laughs> and I'm like, it's Mike. Who's this? And they're like, well, I called because I got the number on your website. I'm like, okay, well, who'd you think you were calling, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not some and, staffer or anyone like that. It's you. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, people on our team have asked me, you know, shouldn't that number go someplace else or shouldn't uh, – you know, one of the other guys answer it or something. I'm like, how is that going to help me? If someone else answers it, they're going to end up texting me, say, you know, saying, call this guy back. I mean, either way, I'm going to end up calling and talking to whoever it is that calls. So I think that that my approach is much more streamlined. Oh, it definitely is. Yeah. I mean, who, who better to talk to, you you know, than you about your campaign? Yeah. uh, Well, that's, that's my attitude. Uh, And I, I think so far it's been a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Um, if someone wants to text me, uh, I can call them back at a convenient time. But outside of that, you call that number, baby. Uh, you're talking to the real deal. So <laughs> if if you hate my guts, uh, have your insult ready to go. And if you have a question, be ready to ask it because I'm answering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll have to deal with plenty of that uh, (laughs) over these next however many months. Um, 
But Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. I, I really do appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, if I do decide to run for office in the future, you'll be the first guy that I call. I doubt I'll be the first. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, when, I'll call you. I'll call you sometime. When you decide, <laughs> you will call me. That's right. The number will be on the website. Yeah, so I already have it. You don't know how. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, you will call right. and you'll say, I must have eaten something bad because my gut's telling me that I should run for office. What do you think? And I'll, I'll say, I'm flying out tomorrow. We'll discuss it at lunch. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what the future has in store for both of us then. <laughs> well, that's right. As Humphrey Bogart said in uh, Casablanca, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. It's a great quote to end it on. Mike, thanks for coming <laughs> on the show, man. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. You take care. You too.